And now, an Envision Financial podcast with Luke Smith on Canberra's 2CC. Friday afternoon, although it may be a little cloudy and gloomy, I'm about to brighten up your day because it's time to talk to Luke Smith from Envision Financial and we'll talk all things money. Luke, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming in. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Second time back in the studio <laughs> after months of lockdown. Yeah, and looking outside to weeks and weeks of lovely weather, I had a pool put in. And, yeah, there's a big hole in my garden and no plastic, so I need this rain to go away so we can get that finished. Well, that's right. Yes, it's a bit inconvenient having the rain turn up unexpectedly like that. Never mind. We're Mm. here to talk uh, finances once again, and uh, we're going to uh, return to something we've done once before. Mm. We're going to answer the most commonly asked questions when it comes to financial advice. This is part two because we've done it once before. Mm. Uh, But we've got some more interesting questions that uh, genuine customers, have actually asked you and mm. obviously if they're asking other people might also be asking the same questions yeah that's right and, and and again it's a bit topical because the one thing i've learned is people have got an amazing amount of time to start looking at stuff working from home that they maybe haven't looked at before and i guess it illustrates either a lack of interest in their super or the fact that they just need something to do to fill their days so some of these questions we've got some of these assumptions are quite unique and i think if we can dispel a few of these sort of myths and and, and generalisations, then at least people can sort of understand that, you know what, that question you thought was silly, it actually gets asked a lot more than you realise, you know. Okay. So the number one question on the list, I guess these are in no particular no, order. No, that's right. They're, yeah, they're just... Like, no, yeah, correct. Okay. Yep. So, so just in random order, yep. our first question today is, I'm older now, so... I should hold more cash and fixed interest, shouldn't I? Mm. Well, this is a, a fairly common one, isn't it? Because a lot of people feel that as they get older, they need to be more defensive in their investments. Yeah, look, exactly right. And and that ties in with that general assumption as well. And, and my answer to that is, really, you don't need income and growth? And the rebuttal is immediately, oh, no, no, I'd like, I'd like a, a really strong income stream, please. And I'd like some growth to offset inflation because I don't want to see the value of my money go down in retirement. And then you can pause for a little bit and they listen to what they've just said and they go, okay, so let's move on to the next question. Mm. We'll leave what I've got going as I've got it going. And yeah. I think that's the important thing that the, this, this fallacy of you're older, you need to be more defensive unless there are specific things that are going to affect your investment time frame, such as I'm going to rip it all out in the next 12 months. I've got it for specific things um, or you know, you, you want to be able to have absolutely no capital growth and you understand that, that is totally fine as long as you understand the ramifications of what you're doing. Yeah. But I find generally that most people want good, strong income and they want growth. <clears throat> now, you don't get that from cash and fixed interest because those two sectors don't provide those characteristics of return. So by default, then you need to start thinking about, well, what are my growth options? And that might be international property, infrastructure, uh, Aussie shares, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so keep in mind that because you're getting older, I would argue that your investment time frame is between whenever you invest originally and when you die. Right. It has nothing to do with your retirement date. That's yeah. another one we get, oh, well, I'll invest like this up to my retirement date and then after that I'll change my investment horizon. Well, for me, your investment horizon is the day you walk in my office to the day your family put you in a box because you need income over that time frame and you need yes. growth over that time frame. And there's a fair chance that you want to be able to spend it on the things that you've waited years and years to be able to do. So why would we limit ourselves to no growth and limited income, especially in a unique environment <clears throat> that we're seeing at the moment, which is cash at record low levels. Yes. Um, so your perception of that 
in the current environment would be very different to having this conversation in 06 when you could put money in a bank account and get 8% risk-free. So, yes, in that time it, it may be have been appropriate, but at the moment the ramifications of holding too much cash are actually... Oh, well, that's know, right. The, the low dangerous. interest rate environment that's been yeah. uh, prevailing now for several years, that has changed the dynamic quite yeah. a lot. Uh, but the reason this question keeps coming up, though, is people have had it hammered into them year after year after year that reward mm. is related to risk. And if you're going for the bigger rewards mm. in growth and income, it's going to come mm. inevitably with increased risk. And that's the mm. bit that frightens people, isn't it? That's right. And I think it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about the word risk, you put some goalposts around it. Are we talking about risk in a 12-month period? Are we talking about risk in a five-year period? Are we talking about risk over a 20-year period? Because in the last two years, we've seen a lot of financial risk. We've seen markets come off at record levels. We've seen them return to very, very strong positions. And if your measure of risk was the last two years, then, oh, my word, things have been amazing. But if you look at the events of the last two years and, and, and go forward 10 or 15 It'll just be a blip on a chart mm. um, and people will be talking about it like it was nothing when you look at the broader context of your investment time frame, which, as I say, people need to remember the context of superannuation. It doesn't end when you retire. It ends when you die or you've spent it all. Yes. And hopefully you can do the latter before the first one. <laughs> um, but that, that's the important thing is like anything in life, I don't mind if people, you know, the analogy I use regularly is if you're doing 180 in, in a 100 zone, you're taking on more risk. As long as you know that, I've got no problem with that. I find the biggest misconception people have is they're in a balanced fund thinking they're 50% defensive, 50% growth, but they're not. They're 80% growth assets. And when something like a COVID comes along, that risk measure of volatility is far more than they were expecting and that upsets them. Indeed. So as long as you're informed, I don't care how fast you drive your car, but don't think that hitting a tree at 180 k's is going to give you the same damage as hitting one at 40. Indeed. All right, there's a couple of interesting will questions in this mm. list today as well. So uh, the first of them is, does my will cover superannuation assets? The short answer is no. Um, and that is why when you look at your annual statement from superannuation, you will have in there a binding or non-binding nomination. So... The difference between the two is this. A binding nomination says, in the event of my unlikely death, I'd like everything to go to my spouse. And that removes the discretion of the trustee of whoever you're with in your respective super fund and it gives clear direction that must be followed and there is no discussion about that. A non-binding nomination is more like a guideline. It would be nice if, mm -hmm. but ultimately there is an element of discretion that is afforded to the trustee of the super fund to determine where money goes. So in that example, if someone was to write to the super fund and say that you'd promise them $100,000, they'd need to prove it to the trustee and then the trustee make an informed decision about what is right or wrong, but you've opened the door to an interpretation. So a will doesn't cover your super assets. A will covers your personal effects, shares in companies, entities that you run yes. outside of the superannuation environment. Here's a related question. Often with your superannuation, there has been a component of insurance, a life insurance policy mm -hmm. inside the superannuation. Mm -hmm. yep. What about that money? Well, that money would be paid to the superannuation fund because the policy is owned by the super fund. So in the event of somebody passing, the executor or the person that is taking care of the affairs of the deceased 
would write to the superannuation fund and say, person A has passed, here's all of the information that you want. The insurance company that provides the policy through the super fund would make their assessment in relation to their criteria, whether it's life or total permanent disability, and they would pay the money under the policy to the policy owner, which would be the individual superannuation account, and then that would fall into that account along with their invested capital over their working life, and that would then be paid out under those options. So if you're not in pension phase, you may have a binding nomination. If you're already in pension phase and you want your pension to revert to a spouse, then you can have a reversionary pension nomination that says, in the event that I die, this income stream will continue to my spouse and it passes straight over and there's, there's, there's no ifs, there's no buts. So it's important to understand that a will is assets outside of super and what you'd like to have to have happen and a binding nomination or a reversionary pension are secure ways of controlling the value of your super or pension accounts. Now, the next one's also kind of related, isn't it? Does my will let someone else access my superannuation? Yeah, and well, the answer there is no. In that instance, you needed what's called an enduring power of attorney. And I find that will and enduring power of attorney often get muddled into the same thing. Um, or someone will come into the office and say, I say, oh, have you got a will? Yep, you got an enduring power of attorney? Yeah, it's in my will. It's a bit like saying you're going to peel open a banana and find an apple inside. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, because they're two different things. Correct. That's exactly right. Now, they may be held in conjunction with each other in a folder, but it doesn't mean that one's actually inside the other. Um, so you need an enduring power of attorney, which you know any good lawyer would be an advocate of because if you trip over, bang your head, wake up and think your name's Sharon, um, you need somebody to be able to act on your behalf and take into account your best interests. Um, so for me, clients are mine. It's, it's not negotiable. You get one, you have one. Um, because being married or being in a partnership or a domestic relationship, uh, my understanding is in the eyes of the law, especially the super trustee, it doesn't give you the permission to pull money out of somebody else's super fund that is not yours. So without an enduring power of attorney, you can trot yourself down to court and go through all sorts of palaver that handing over a piece of paper could have removed. So understand what you have, understand what you need, um, and get out and get some specific advice if you don't have one of those two documents because a large portion of people's asset base is in super and not having the keys to it um, can be a very serious problem. Okay. Question number four on the list of frequently asked questions. My investment horizon is through until retirement, right? Well, <laughs> correct. And, and I guess we, we touched on this one sort of indirectly in the, in the first answer. Um, for me, it is. You know, I don't think there's a, a definitive correlation between your retirement date and the way that you approach your assets because your need for things doesn't change. Whilst you accumulate assets in superannuation, you want really good growth and you need some income and franking credits and capital appreciation. You want all of those things in retirement because I don't work with anybody that intentionally wants to see the value of their assets fall unless you're ripping money out as a pension, you know, at, at a much higher rate than you're earning in any one 12-month period, being able to maintain a balance of income and capital is very important because income pays pensions and income is sustainable. Income is also not directly impacted by a change in the value of the share. So the other big misconception is that, oh, the share price has come off, that means the income's coming off. Well, not necessarily because the capital value of an asset or the share price is a measure of whether we like it or don't like it. In the middle of the Royal Commission, we didn't like the banks. Share price came off. 
During the Royal Commission, CBA still recorded billions of dollars profit and maintained their dividend. So there's a great example of where the share price can come off, but the dividend can remain where it was or where it is because it's only a reflection of value at any one point in time. Earnings and profit drive distributions. So the two are not directly correlated all of the time. They're to be considered, but you can't make the generalisation that share price is off, that it automatically means the dividend's coming off because everybody loves fully frank dividends in their super fund, right? Well, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Unless someone asks who Frank is and why is he taking my dividends. I get that well, one a lot. Well, well, yeah, exactly. So do all super funds pay dividends <laughs> from investments or, or it's – No, not- well, again, this is another another misconception that all super funds are the same, right? Um, a, a unitized account, like an, an industry fund, it reflects the value of the return in the value of your units. So you start the year at, at, at $1 a unit, for example, and at the end of the year – it might be worth a dollar ten, dollar five, dollar twenty, dollar twenty-five, dollar thirty-five, dollar six, whatever it is. Think about it from another sector. You bought an investment property, but you didn't rent it. You just reflected the change in value in the market price of the house. You generally don't do that. No. People look at the value of the house and they say, Well, I want the rent along the way to pay a mortgage, to pay my lifestyle, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you should think about your superannuation in the same way when you're moving into retirement phase. People's importance and reliance on income becomes far more important to them when they reach retirement age than than prior to reaching it because they've got wages and they can live. So you don't really care how your return is generated because you can't get it anyway. When you reach preservation age and you can take out a pension to fund the way you want to live, I find people become acutely aware of what is the income profile of my investment. And when they find out they're not in a fund that provides a dividend, then they start to say, well, I can maximise my income through the use of franking credits and I want more control. So finding a super fund that is right for you is important in the same vein as buying the right sort of car for the right purpose. I'm six foot five. I don't have a mini. (laughs) That doesn't mean I'm anti-mini. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of people come in and they say that and they go, oh, you're anti-mini. No, not at all. Great little car. I just wouldn't fit in one. Mm. So I'm not going to buy one. So that type of car is not right for me. Uh, A unitized fund for someone that's retiring and wants to control their income is not right for them. It doesn't mean they're bad. It's just about aligning your key priorities and the controls you want in retirement with the product that you're using. Questions that are commonly asked. (laughs) You mentioned franking credits a couple of times there in the earlier questions. So the next commonly asked question, Mm. do all shares offer franking credits? Yeah, well, the short answer there is no. Um, The important question here is what are you investing in and does it provide all of the tax credits? And that's effectively what a franking credit is. People say, well, what is a franking credit? A franking credit is just being given the tax that has been paid by the company you're investing in. So if you invest in CBA, they pay a whole load of tax on their earnings and you get a franking credit, which is some of the tax that's been paid by them that helps you from a tax perspective in the total wash-up of your earnings. Effectively, it means the dividend money that you receive is after-tax money because you you get a portion of tax paid on it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Now, the important thing to keep in mind is that happens with Australian shares doesn't happen with property, doesn't happen with fixed interest, doesn't happen with international. It also doesn't happen automatically with all Australian shares. So you need to check. 
So a good example is um, CBA, ANZ, Westpac, NAB, fully franked, which means you get all the tax credits that they pay. Macquarie, 40% franked. So you get a portion of the franking credits. So you can't make the assumption that they are all fully franked. You just need to check and see what you're buying into because it will affect the, the, the total yield or the total income that you receive in pension phase, especially in retirement, where they're returned to you by the ATO. And I assume if there's a company that hasn't paid any tax at all, then I presume there's no franking credit because right. they haven't paid any tax. Well, there's also some companies that, that, that pay tax, they just don't pass it on. Yes. So, you know, again, it's, it's at their discretion. It's not, it's not mandatory. Okay. All right. If I don't have an administration fee in my fund, that means it's cheap, right? Well, the answer there is it depends. It depends. And this one's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, so when you're looking at the fees and charges of your superannuation account, you want to look at the admin fee, and that might be $7.50 a month. It might be nothing. You then need to go and look at the internal cost ratio, and that is the cost that you incur for the investment option that you are in. Okay, because what some fund providers um, do is they say, oh, we don't have an admin fee but then they'll have an amazing internal cost ratio. So some A&P funds are notorious for this. Um, PSSAP, it's similar. We've got a very low admin fee, but we charge you 1.15% on the balanced option in that fund, which a normal or an, an effective internal cost ratio for me between 0.4 and 0.6 is probably fair and reasonable. 1.15, probably not great. Some funds at AMP, um, you know, 2% plus. So don't just assume that you're not paying an admin fee. They're not getting you somewhere else. Look at the internal cost ratio and some of the other property charges and some of the others that are there because there'll be an operating fee, there'll be a property fee, there'll be a borrowing fee, and that may be in an ancillary product disclosure statement. So just check that out. Don't assume that no admin fee, it's, it's a cheap one. And finally, uh, this has become a more common question in recent times. Mm. Can my super fund hold cryptocurrencies, the flavour of the month? That's right. It's, it's risk-free, isn't it? And it's amazing. Oh, no. Woo. You've heard of the Shiba Inu uh, crypto <laughs> coin, which has increased by 85 million percent from its low point to its recent high. But, of course, since that recent high, it's tumbled quite considerably. You can oh. lose a lot of money just as quickly. Yeah, look, and again, I think people need to keep this in mind. I'm not against anything in moderation, but just understand understand what you're getting into. Um, the, generally, the answer here is no, because crypto at the moment isn't on approved product lists of superannuation funds. So all superannuation structures have what they call an APL or an approved product list. And that's just uh, a list of investment options that have been approved by the trustee that have been researched that they believe are appropriate that you can select from. Now, some super funds will let you have two, three, four, five, six options. Some will let you have 500 options. Yeah. At the moment, there aren't many, well, there aren't any that I know about that offer it. You can obviously buy it through a self-managed super fund because the trustee, i.e. you, you're in control of the menu that you select from. So there's a lot of crypto going into self-managed super funds and that's a big advantage of that structure. Um, so you just need to check. If you're thinking about joining or moving funds, have a look at the APL, see if there is one. I think with time, we'll start to get some ETFs um, that get approved that hold a basket of crypto stuff. I think that'll start to become far more uh, common going forward. But at the moment, it's, it's, it's not something that you can race out and do through super. Well, I don't know if you saw this, but during the week, the Commonwealth Bank announced it's going to introduce a trial program where it allows people to buy crypto coins on their NetBank platform. 
Now, All that's right. quite extraordinary. It's going that mainstream. So that Oh, look, I think this is, again, I'm, I'm not au fait with the ins and outs of this. I've got... Uh, oh, no, it's it's mind-baffling. It really is. I I've, don't try to understand well, it. Well, I've got a, a very good friend of mine who actually uh, resides in Tonga, and they're trying to bring that into parliament there as a, a payment mechanism for, you know... Interesting. ...their country uh, because of the speed and the, and the control that they have. So, you know, getting across this and understanding, I think it's going to be a very powerful platform... Yeah. Certainly very interesting times. Mm. Now, we're out of time, Luke, so where can we listeners are. get more information? So, office number 6260-4749, um, au on the website. That's Envision with an E. We've got the podcast, The Strategy Stacker, Luke Talks Money. Uh, that's on iTunes and Spotify. And we've got the YouTube channel, Envision Financial Canberra. So, if you don't want to listen to the podcast, get it on your iPhone, sit on the couch, your phone's in your hand 23 and a half hours a day probably, um, learn something. So, it's there for... Everyone, and you know, if you've got a topic that we want to touch on that we haven't brought up, Luke at envisionfinancial.com.au. That's my direct email. Um, shoot it through, and we'll try and build it into the program. Fantastic. We'll catch you again next Friday. See you next Friday.